Why don't we begin with the word? We're going to read Daniel in its entirety. So please join me in Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasuries of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths of who, are, who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before, in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, the enchanters that were, with, that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Just a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, we're reading from your word, and we know that your word 
is living and active. So would you plant it deep in our hearts that we may understand as Daniel has understood, not simply to just understand, but to live accordingly with joy, with love, with patience. We ask in your name. Amen. The times of the Old Testament is not that different from our time. It is different, but it's very similar. No matter what period the church is in, where in history we are, the church, there are some common points, whether New Testament or Old Testament, and Daniel is no exception. Well, let's start with what's dissimilar, what's not similar. In the Old Testament, there was a central place of worship, which was Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem was the temple. And in the temple, the Lord promised that his name would be there. And that's why literally in the Hebrew, the temple is house, God's house. This is where he dwells. And this is where the people assemble to worship God. Sacrifices were offered there. And even we read that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But here in our passage, we read something shocking. To us, it might not sound shocking, but to the average Jewish listener, they would have immediately been alarmed because in 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieged Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar plundered the temple. He took the holy vessels that are used in the temple and also took captives from Judah. And eventually, the temple will be destroyed. And this is where Daniel opens up. Daniel begins, chooses this to open up his, his book. And this is what's known as the Babylonian captivity. Not just Daniel, but many others are taken to Babylon as slaves. And Daniel, at this time, is just a youth, so he's just a teen. Imagine being a teen and seeing the people in your neighborhood being slain. And the royalty, the nobles, of whom Daniel probably is one, being taken captive. Now, if you're a Jew at this time, whether you're in Judah or whether you're taken captive, you may have thought, why is this happening? What is going on? Why are these awful things happening to your people, God? I thought you were all-powerful. Then how could you let this happen? What about the scriptures that say that you are our shield? You are our keeper, a very present help. Don't you care? Don't you care about your people? And some may have even thought, God, he's abandoned us. And Daniel 1 addresses these questions. These are not easy questions. But I think they are very pertinent questions 
not just for Daniel, but also for the church, whether in the Old or New Testament. So I want to look at the passage in this way. The first is Daniel in exile and us in exile. Simple. Daniel in exile and us in exile. Well, God does seem absent on the surface. He is seemingly not there. The temple is ransacked. Now, it made sense, perhaps, to some Jews to just doubt God, to not believe, because how could this happen? But that's not what we see in Daniel and his friends. He's actually firmly set on three truths. The three truths is God remains faithful even in exile. God gives grace while in exile. And God will surely end the exile. God remains faithful. He shows grace and he will end the exile. Now, how does God remain faithful in the exile? Actually, in the very act of exiling his own people, God is being faithful. He's being faithful in two ways. In the very act of exiling his people, he's faithful in his judgment and he's faithful in his promise. Now, more than a thousand years before Daniel, God delivered the Israelites out from Egypt, and he covenanted with them. He made a covenant, a non-negotiable binding contract. And the preface to the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the preface. God is reminding them that he is the Lord, your God, And in love, you're rescued from slavery to be my people. And then he stipulates the Ten Commandments. And for obeying, there's blessing. But for disobeying, there's curse. And so the Lord says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I'll bless you. I will give you your own land. You'll have harvest. You'll have rain. It'll it'll go well with you. Not only that, you'll dwell securely in your land. In short, what the Lord is saying to his people is, if you obey, you're my people. You're my people. So if you obey, you will live as my people. Blessed. But if you will not listen, if you will not do his commandments, if you break my covenant, then there'll be disease. There'll be fever. The harvest will go to someone else. Your enemies will take your harvest and they will strike you down. And those who hate you will rule over you. And moreover, if you persist, if you continue to persist in disobedience, I will scatter you among the nations and will draw my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. And it's very clear, but despite, despite God's clear warnings, despite God's clear grace, 
What did the Israelites do? What does little Judah do? They worship other gods. They put their trust in alliances with foreign nations. They put their trust in the gods of those nations, presuming all the while that God is our God. That we have Abraham for our father. They're presuming on the kindness of God while having alliances with other nations. So generation after generation, this is how it goes, and it gets progressively, progressively worse. And they learn that God cannot be mocked. So God judges them and sends them into exile. And the opening lines capture this. We see in verse 1 and 2, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And it's the Lord, verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So the Lord is faithful in his judgment. Nebuchadnezzar and his military may have besieged Jerusalem, but the primary cause is the Lord himself. The Lord gave little Judah's king into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And not only Jehoiakim, but also, take note, the sacred vessels of the temple. Nebuchadnezzar carts off the holy items of the temple and places them in his gods, in the Babylonian god's house. Kind of like war trophies. Look what I have. Look what I hunted. And in the ancient Near East culture, the fortunes of a god and the people were very intertwined. So for the king of Judah and the people and the, the, the temple vessels to be pillaged, this meant in the ancient Near East that the Lord was unable to protect his people. The Lord was unable even to protect himself. And so the Babylonians probably mocked God, probably mocked the captives. Your God is so weak, not even a God. The great and awesome power of God the great and awesome, fearful power of the Lord Almighty mocked and essentially debunked. The Lord knew how it would seem and the Lord knew how it would look to a watching world, but it's exactly in this humiliating context that the Lord promises to be with the exiles. You see, the Lord is willing to suffer this kind of shame with the people if it means that the people will be awakened. And that's why the Lord says, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, then I will remember my covenant with Abraham. So he promises, promises to be with them in exile, both in judgment and faithful in his promise. And so God gives grace. He gives grace to them, the captives, while they're in exile. Now Nebuchadnezzar, he violently separates the best of the best from the rest. He brings 
the Judeans of royal and noble births and take them into his court as slaves, as captives. And he has them trained to eventually serve as his royal attendants. And among them are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And Nebuchadnezzar does three things to them. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does, does is rename them. He renames each of them. Their names, it, it reminds them of who God is. Daniel, my judge is El, God. Hananiah, gracious has Yahweh been. Mishael, who is what El is. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. And it's interesting, if you put these names together, as Daniel has listed it here in Daniel 1, it reads, though God has judged, he has been gracious. Who is what God is? Yah's helper. And second, what Nebuchadnezzar does is he teaches them the language and literature of the Babylonians, the occult, the, the ways of interpreting dreams, interpreting signs, entrails from animals, stars. And he indoctrinates them with the worldview of the Babylonians. And the third thing that Nebuchadnezzar does is he gives them choice food choice food and wine from his very own table. Essentially, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's reprogramming them. He's brainwashing them. He's trying to have them forget about Jerusalem, forget about your life, forget about Israel and Israel's God. I've conquered you. Your God has not saved you. Your life is dependent on me. I provide for you. I rename you. You will learn my ways and you will eat from my table. But Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these teens, they hold on to their God. They hold fast to the God of Israel, the only true God. Now, they may have had new names, but their core identity was not shaken. They may have been forced to learn the mysteries of Babylon, the false religious ways of Babylon, but they remain faith in the firm, in the faith. And they refused the king's food. Now, if they didn't eat, it's obvious they would have not survived, especially as teens. How could they not eat, right? Well, if they don't eat, they'll starve or they'll be executed. But Daniel remained resolute. We read in verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. So they were trying to make a stand. We don't depend on the king of Babylon for life. We may live in Babylon, but we're not of Babylon. We may live in the world, but we don't belong to this world. And what does the chief eunuch care about the four captive youths? Why does he even care? There are probably hundreds and thousands of other captives. So why should the chief eunuch listen to these four and grant them the request? He says, why should I even risk my own head? And it's in this situation that God shows them grace and shows them favor. 
Look at verse 14 and 15. So he listened to them, the chief of eunuchs. He listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate of the king's food. It's unexpected. I mean, normally, it's carbs and sweets and fats that fatten you up. But here, water and vegetables seems to do the job. But it's not inherently in the vegetable and water, but it's the Lord that beefs them up. And not only physically do they grow fatter and grow, but in learning and skill and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And this kind of sets up the stage for the later part of this book. Daniel will use the gift that he has given to witness to the unbelieving world who the real God is. Even in exile, even if it looks like they're a scrawny bunch of captives, God is with them. It may look dismal. It may look hopeless. But don't miss the irony here. The four youths, teens that are captured, forced to be brainwashed, after the three-year training program, Nebuchadnezzar found them far greater, ten times, a complete amount better than all the leading astrologers, magicians, sorcerers, all the different quacks, if you will. All of them. And even though they're captives, God will show that he will display his might through these, through these four. When we come to the last part, God will surely end the exile. He will surely end it. In the end of Genesis, roughly a thousand years before the time of Daniel, Joseph was sold as a slave as kind of like a cruel joke that his brothers had on him. They sold him off as a slave. And by God's grace, in the foreign land of Egypt, he became, through various different trials, he became second in command of all of Egypt. And Joseph prophesied to his brother, to his brothers who sold him and their posterity. He says, though you meant evil, God meant it for good. And God will surely visit you and bring you up out of this land into the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in a similar fashion, even though calamity falls upon Judah and the temple is destroyed and God's people scattered, Daniel flashes forward. He flashes forward 70 years to the sure deliverance. If you look at verse 21, it says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Like Joseph, who prophesied deliverance even before the Egyptian enslavement, Daniel is reminding the readers of deliverance that will be. Like Isaiah, even before, way before the exile is even to happen, the Babylonian exile, Cyrus will be God's shepherd, named Cyrus. This Cyrus will later issue a law ordering all of God's people to be freed. 
the Israelites who are once captured will return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And Daniel is revealing right from chapter 1 that God will end the exile. There are going to be fiery trials. It's not going to be easy. Daniel will have to face many different, many different tests. Yet through it all, God will end the exile. And so verse 21 takes us to the end of the Babylonian kingdom, to the end of the Babylonian captivivity, when Daniel is about 80 years old. Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire will topple Babylon. And the Medo-Persian Empire will eventually be toppled too. It will take 70 years for this to happen, but it's sure this God who gave Judah into the Babylonians' hands. And it's also God who will end the exile and bring them back. That's Daniel in exile. What about us? What about us in exile? It's a strange word for us. Um, Yes, some of us have immigrated to the U.S., but I think it's safe to say that none of us has first year, first-hand experience of, of captivity, uh, being taken captive in a foreign land. But I think most of us can say that it's a strange world. It's changed quite a bit, and it's still rapidly changing. We're not literally in an exile, but post-pandemic versus pre There's a lot of different things. Cultural norms, in some sense, have been redefined, or at the very least, have been re-examined in terms of health, economics, politics, technology, and so on and so forth. Despite all this, despite all the flux, we may have differences, uh, differences when it comes to core beliefs on how the economy should be run or politics, the pros and cons of social media, whatever it might be, we may have our differences. And as New Yorkers, we're kind of used to that diversity. Uh, But nevertheless, even though we have these differences and they can perhaps divide, we can have some common points. There's some commonality here. Um, It's obvious, but I think I gotta state it. We all want to be known, and we want to know others. We want to be cared for, and we also want to care for others. Um, In in essence, we want to be loved, and we want to love. When there's trouble and sorrow, we yearn for resolution and relief. When there's joy and happiness, we wish the day would never end. Simply, even if we know all this, Even if we know that this world is in flux, there are some certain core things that we all can agree on. Um, You may not believe in Christianity. Most of us, maybe we do, but I don't know your heart. Some, Some of us may not. But the Bible is absolutely and unequivocally clear. We all feel this that built into the very fabric of who we are, God has created us to be in communion with him because we are his image bearers. In a shadowy way, the temple housed the holy name of God, but we, 
as created image, as living temples, we're, we're supposed to house the living God's name in our hearts, in who we are, in what we think, in what we do. In other words, God meant for us to have a deep and personal relationship with him. But when Adam and Eve sinned and they were cast out, in other words, exiled from the fellowship of God, the image wasn't destroyed. The image was there. The image was never destroyed. But because of sin, because we were left without the fellowship of God, we're left with the strange feeling of wandering, wanting rest, wanting permanency. Sometimes we're home and we strangely long for home. We're home, but we long for home. St. Augustine says it like this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Uh, Pascal says it like this, There was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. C.S. Lewis says it like this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Us in exile. Because of our daily duties, our cares, our worries, the things that just pull and tug at us, our desires, maybe our own desires, our heart's desires, in the midst of our very exile from God, we fail to realize that we are in exile. We're currently in in exile, but we fail to recognize it sometimes. Kind of like the new Babylonian names that they were given, these four youths. Um, Maybe, maybe for some of us, maybe we kind of take our core identity from not the word of God as image bearers, but we look to the position that we hold or the title that we have or the the job that we have, or whatever grade we are. Or we can maybe impose it on someone else and reduce someone else's identity to a label or a key word. And sometimes, just as Nebuchadnezzar tried to brainwash the youth, we let the Babylonian influence kind of wash over us, whether knowingly or unwittingly. Sometimes it's glaringly obvious through the media that we consume, But sometimes it's subtle, the ideologies that we adopt. It kind of affects the way that we view others, view ourselves, view the world, where humanity has come from, where it's going to flow, what really matters in the end, our values, how, how we value them too. It affects us. And who doesn't want to eat or drink the choice and fine things of life? But life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So Daniel reminds us that though we live in Babylon, though we are in exile, do not forget, remember, this is not what we were created for, this world. We constantly forget this. There's much more to life than what meets the eye, what feelings we have, what experiences that we treasure in this world. More than that, we were created first and foremost to be image bearers, to be in fellowship and communion with the living God, to be known by him, to know him. 
and this world that we live in, the people we meet, the careers that we have or want to have, or the schools that we currently go to, whether it's homeschool or public school, the places we visit, the circles that we have, all of these are blessings from God, but none of them were meant to be our core identity. None of it is supposed to be our true resting place. None of the things of this world can truly satisfy us, and yet we forget it. So sometimes we keep looking and digging and keep looking, and we constantly crave for something more and more. Looking, keep looking. But even if we do sometimes forget, there's one who has not forgotten. He sees you in your exile. He sees me in my exile, wandering away from home. The Son of God, who with the Father was in glory from all eternity, he willingly became exiled himself. He exiled himself. He willingly took it on, came down from heaven into our world, the very world that he created. He had everything that you can possibly imagine, you know. As the creator of all things, everything's at his fingertips. Angels were worshiping him. Glory and majesty. The Most High, who does not dwell in houses made by hands, came down to dwell with men and women. He emptied himself taking the form of a servant, born as a baby, growing up, increasing in wisdom and stature, yet having nowhere to lay his head. Now Daniel didn't want to be defiled by the things of Babylon, so he resolved himself to eat vegetables and drink water. But Jesus, even though he is completely pure, completely righteous before the law, he willingly made himself defiled in the eyes of the world, treated like a criminal, taken captive to the will of the sinful crowd, and publicly mocked, publicly executed in front of the crowd. And on the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate exile. The Father saw the Son hanging on the cross, and the Father turned his back on him. He left his Son there to die, the painful, and shameful death. Why? Why did Jesus knowingly take this upon himself? Well, Jesus took our defilement, went to the cross to satisfy the just wrath, the punishment of God, the punishment of being abandoned by God, the punishment of being exiled from paradise. He willingly endured this, the ultimate exile, he endured it so that he might end our exile and bring us home. When he died and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, there was a way made in, all the way into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God for which we were made, to fellowship, to communion with him. Jesus, by his resurrection, when he rose from the dead, pioneered a way for us to go home. This is what we were created for, to be with him face to face, to be called my son, to be called my daughter. And he says, surely I am coming soon. I am with you to the end of the age. And this is what the gospel is about. This is what Christianity is about. This is what Daniel longed for and believed. 
for sin and punishment to be removed and to return home. And this is what Jesus accomplished for you already, for you and for me. You see, the kingdom of God is already here, right now. But at the same time, it's not fully here. It's not consummately here. For believers, we know where our true home is. We're still in exile. We're still in Babylon. But we know we're homebound. We still need to live according to the laws of the land, the civil rules of the world. We have our work in front of us. Tomorrow may be a day off for some of us, but we still need to do about our daily tasks. For some of us, we may have a day off for school, but we still need to go back, finish our education, finish our degrees, um, and get a career, grow into career, take care of family, take care of business, whatever it might be. Even in Babylon, we're supposed to do all these, these things and still be a blessing unto Babylon, seeking the welfare of the city. You see, Daniel didn't oppose Nebuchadnezzar and start a rebellion to uprise and overthrow Babylon that way. No, he knew that the exile was God's purpose. And he knew also that one day God would end the exile. And so he served Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus also didn't oppose the Roman Empire by starting a rebellion. He knew the will of God. He knew what he had to do in order to accomplish that will. And so he willingly confronted the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, not passively, not violently, but divinely. And we also live in a world ruled by various different governments and laws and our daily duties. But we know that this is not our true home. We know that we don't belong here ultimately. Just as Daniel saw the end of the exile with Cyrus, we too will see the end of our exile with the king of all kings, Jesus. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, holy and majestic is your name that you would in your splendor and your majesty and in all your holiness would choose people like us and identify with us and come down from heaven to dwell with us. And by your resurrection and ascension, you have sent your spirit to dwell in each one of us by faith, so help us, O oh Lord, to hold on to that, knowing that even though we are exiled, we're homebound. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.